The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here's your top five at five. Futures surging after Friday's triple-digit sell-off. Yields are leveling off at this hour. The FDA giving Johnson & Johnson the green light for its single-dose COVID-19 vaccine shipments. They begin today. President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus bill, stimulus bill passing the House. It now heads to the Senate for what could be an uncertain future. And Warren Buffett betting big on Berkshire once again and admits to one serious mistake in his annual letter to shareholders. And retail trading platform Robinhood has some big plans for more cash in 2021. It is Monday, March 1st, 2021, and you are watching CBC's Worldwide Exchange. Good morning, everyone. I'm Seema Modi in for Brian Sullivan on March 1st, kicking off your Monday morning and the first trading day of the month with a look at stock futures right now. We are higher across the board and in the bond market, which really has been driving the action. You will see that yields have been coming down from their recent highs that were hit last week. And if we take a look at what's happening around the world, you'll see it's mostly a higher session overnight in Asia, with the exception of the South Korean market. Uh, We did end the market and did end the session higher across Asia. And in Europe, trading just got started and we're actually higher across the board there. The U.S. is the third for uh, coronavirus vaccine in its arsenal now, a key CDC advisory panel and the CDC director giving Johnson & Johnson's vaccine the green light over the weekend. The independent group of experts unanimously voting in recommendation of the single-dose vaccine being used in adults ages 18 and older. The final vote was 12 in favor of the recommendation with one recusal for a possible conflict of interest. The virtual meeting was held hours after the FDA authorized the vaccine for emergency use late Saturday night. Now, the CDC says the vaccine could be beneficial for health equity because it could be used to reach disproportionately affected groups, such as those living in rural areas. Johnson & Johnson officially have previously said it would be prepared to ship nearly 4 million doses once it receives the emergency use authorization and at least 20 million by the end of the month. According to the CDC, as of yesterday, more than 75 million doses of the Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna vaccines have been administered in the U.S. And on that note, don't miss Johnson & Johnson CEO Alex Gorski talking about this huge milestone on Squawk Box later today, 8 a.m. Eastern. Back to the markets with futures indicating a higher open and the continued threat of rising Treasury yields that we've seen um, really take place in the technology market. We had a new note from Goldman Sachs out last night saying that uh, telling clients, investors ask whether the level of rates is becoming a threat to equity valuations. Our answer is an emphatic no. 
Joining me now with his take is Robert Teeter, Silvercrest Asset Management, Managing Director and Head of Investment Policy at Strategy Group. Robert, thank you for joining us today. What do you think? Do you agree with Goldman Sachs? Is the market's reaction to the bond market justified? Thank you. Good morning. Um, I do mostly agree that the level of rates today is not a problem, and we think that any pickup in inflation is likely to be transitory. Um, that said, it's, it's great news that we've got a new month, a new vaccine, and a new issue to focus on. And so markets are starting to move away from COVID uh, and moving towards other issues. And, and clearly, interest rates and inflation are, are squarely in the headlights for what investors are focused on today. And what do you make of the move in technology? Because that really was the source of selling pressure that we saw last week. I mean, I'm looking at names like Amazon, Apple, and Alphabet trading about 15 to 20 percent off their recent highs. That's right. Well, any declines in, in great companies are always discouraging, um, but we think it's part of a healthy transition and a healthy rotation. Um, anytime you enter these new eras, things tend to move sideways for a while or be a bit bumpy. A uh, transition and change can be difficult, and we're starting to go through that transition now, starting to look ahead to what the era beyond COVID looks like. And that's causing investors to look into other areas such as small caps or uh, things that have more of a cyclical tilt to them. Where would you be putting money to work here on the first day of March? Well, we think the areas that have those tailwinds are still interesting. So with a really strong and improving economy uh, and many sectors going through their own version of cyclicality, we think things like industrials, financials, uh, some of the areas that are disrupted by COVID and are starting to heal, uh, those are the places where we would look. And then further, we'd look to anything that has operating leverage uh, and places who have the potential to improve profit margins, either through productivity gains that they have tackled during COVID or otherwise. You know, over the weekend, I don't know if you read the Barons, but there was a big article about how if yields continue to rise, industrials, that's the sector that you want to put money to work because it's one of the sectors that will benefit um, from a rebound in the economy. And if D.C. does move forward with an infrastructure bill, I'm wondering if that's an area that you think um, you'd be sort of putting some money to work here. That's right. I think that does have a lot of tailwinds. Industrials have a few things going for them, uh, not only an improving economy, but as you mentioned, a changing policy mix and a focus on putting people back to work in America, jobs in America, the American manufacturing renaissance. Um, all of these things lend themselves to an industry like industrials uh, that have those tailwinds behind them. Speaking of policy, D.C. over the weekend moving forward with the stimulus bill. Now we look to see what the Senate does. But how does that change your uh, sort of consensus on, on how pol policies out of Washington could drive this market? Well, I think in the short term, it, it's a positive to get that done and get it in the background and, and help the 10 million people who are out of work. Uh, it does create some longer term issues again, and that's why interest rates are squarely in focus, uh, whether inflation will be caused by any of this, whether, whether rates will start to get out of control, whether the Fed will lose the narrative. Um, we think that's all part of a natural transition. We think ultimately investors will look through that uh, and look to the other side and see a, a relatively strong economy and rates that have moved higher, uh, but still remain very low by historical standards. The threat of inflation, Robert, how should we be reading that? And how do you expect that conversation to uh, sort of evolve here in the month of, more, month of March? Well, that is certainly one of the issues that's come to the forefront here and is something that's starting to crowd out COVID news a little bit. And I think for good reason. Um, we will see a little bit of modest upward pressure on inflation. We've seen some of it in commodity prices recently. Uh, but there are a lot of structural forces keeping inflation down. Uh, some of those are things that aren't going to change, COVID or not, stimulus or not. Uh, one thing is that the supply side of this economy is, is heavily service-based, it's very flexible, it's very resilient, uh, it's, it's very able to change in terms of capacity offered up. You have a relatively slack labor market as well, um, and you have a lot of other forces going on that are helping to keep a lid on inflationary prices. Those things existed before COVID, and they haven't changed during COVID. So 
We see a little bit of a bit, bit of an increase in inflation, uh, but that'll likely be transitory and we'll be past that in, in coming quarters. All right. So it doesn't seem like you're that concerned about this rise in consumer prices. But yet, when you look at the price of oil now back above $65 a barrel or copper, which is now at a nine year high, there are certain parts of this market, Robert, that suggest uh, inflation is going to be moving much higher than expected in the near term. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's consistent with the economy overall, the same way that we've had certain sectors that weren't impacted by COVID at all, uh, some that were absolutely devastated. You see the same types of things across prices for, for everything. So some prices have remained very stable, very competitive. We have a globally competitive marketplace, easy price comparison. Um, others, there, there is a slight tight, tight uh, supply and demand imbalance in some of the commodity areas that you mentioned, and there will be some upward pressure there. Uh, but I don't think that's going to be universal across all prices. The Dow currently up 320 points here in pre-market trade. Robert, thank you for joining us. Have a great morning. Robert Teeter. Thank you. To Washington now, the House of Representatives passing President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, teeing up what is expected to be days of debate and deal-making in the Senate. NBC's Tracy Potts joins us live from Washington with more on what to expect. Tracy. Seema, expect that this is probably not going to get Republican support. At least it doesn't have any so far. And this is the bill that includes money for vaccines. We now have a third vaccine that's been approved in the United States. The government saying it will start to ship out this week, but that those shipments at first may be inconsistent. Johnson & Johnson promising 4 million doses of their new one-shot COVID vaccine this week, but the Biden administration says don't wait for it. People should take the one that's most available to them. Money for more vaccines and direct payments, all part of COVID relief now in the hands of a divided Senate. We're moving ahead with a bill that probably will get no Republican votes. Republicans argue it's packed with things that have nothing to do with the virus. Do we need to pay for bridges? Does that have anything to do with COVID? Do we need to pay for tunnels for Silicon Valley? Some Democrats now want to revoke business tax credits instead after a minimum wage increase was cut out. We're going to have to spend the next several days or even weeks figuring out what the best path forward is, but he's... Today, President Biden meets with Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Border security is sure to top their agenda one day after former President Trump slammed Biden's immigration policy at the conservative CPAC conference. There's no better example than the new and horrible crisis on our southern border. We did such a good job. It was all worked. Nobody's ever seen anything like we did. And now he wants it all to go to hell. It's become a Trump party. It's not a party of reason. Uh, it's a party that has turned its back. Trump in his first major speech since leaving office, hinting he'll run again in 2024. He also spent some time calling out Republicans who voted for impeachment, Seema. There you go. Donald Trump at it again. Tracy, thank you for joining us. Tracy Potts. When we come back, history in the making in the C-suite at one, as one of the country's biggest banks. Plus Warren Buffett's big investment error that cost the Oracle some $11 billion last year. And later, Robinhood's big plans for 2021. A very busy hour still ahead on Worldwide Exchange. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? 
At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. A C-suite shakeup, big buyback bets, and more love for fintech. That's just some of the themes that we are seeing this morning in the stocks that are moving. Let's start with Citigroup. We've been showing it to you. It's up 2% pre-market because today, Jane Fraser takes over as chief executive as the third biggest bank in the U.S., making her the first woman to lead a major American bank. The stock is up more than 9% so far this year, and her move into the CEO position comes at a time when Citi, one of the industry's problem childs, has stabilized and built up its defenses, proving sturdy and profitable even during this pandemic. Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett getting a lot of focus this weekend. The company announcing once again it has bought back a record amount of stock, around $9 billion in the fourth quarter alone. That brings Berkshire's total 2020 repurchase to a record $24.7 billion. Our Becky Quick will have much more on the Buffett letter later on the next hour of the show. The head of Goldman Sachs Consumer Finance Division, Omer Ismail, and one of its top executives, David Stark, are both leaving to join a fintech startup backed by Walmart. The hires represent a big step in the second big effort by the world's largest retailer to enter financial services after it abandoned its plans to start a bank over a decade ago following pressure from regulators. Now, Ismail is a Dartmouth College and Harvard Business School graduate who had been with Goldman since 2002. He was tapped to lead the bank's consumer division, known as Marcus, less than six months ago. And Goldman is up by 1.6% in pre-market. All right, still on deck, a big night for Netflix during yesterday's Golden Globe Awards show. The moments that you may have missed, that's coming up next. Today's big number, $3.9 trillion. That's the total savings households in the U.S. had at the end of January, according to the Commerce Department. That's an increase of nearly 70% from last February before the pandemic began. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
Well, it was a bruising week for the stock market last week with the Nasdaq down over 4%. But here on the first day of March, we are higher. Some pretty sizable gains here in pre-market trade. The Dow up 340 points, the Nasdaq higher by 208, and the S&P 500 implied open up 45 points. As to the biggest gainers on the Dow at this hour in pre-market, we're looking at J&J with that historic news on its vaccine up 3.5%. Boeing, Apple, Salesforce, and Disney rounding out the top five. And to Hollywood we go. A virtual Golden Globe show saw Netflix winning the most awards out of any distributor last night. But even wins for big players like Disney and Warner Media underscored the importance of getting content to viewers stuck at home. Joining us now for more is Michael Snyder, senior editor at Variety. Michael, it's been a long night for you, but once again, the streaming giants really showing up this year at the award show. This is the story. This is the future. You look at Netflix's complete domination, 10 awards between film and television, and then that's just the start of it. The streamers really have taken over the awards race just as they have just the, the, the business in general. And why do you think that is? Is it because they just have more money to put to work to uh, invest in great content? Or do they just have the best, uh, you know, the best directors and producers right now? What is their secret sauce? Well, it's all the above, right? I mean, they have the funds. They're spending billions of dollars in content. So they have sheer tonnage and uh, money begets talent. So they are buying their way into these races and into our homes with the best content, with the best producers, writers, directors, and stars. So that money is paying off, at least when it comes to these awards. What were some of the biggest surprising uh, moments to you, uh, I guess? Because I get, I wasn't surprised to see Crown and Queen's Gambit do so well. Those were some of my favorite shows over the pandemic. But what stood out to you, Michael? Yeah, there, there weren't a ton of surprises. I think you're right. The, the Crown, we expected, was going to do well. We weren't sure if it was going to be Olivia Colman, who plays Queen Elizabeth, uh, who won, or Emma Corrin, who end, ended up winning as, as uh, Princess Diana. Uh, in the film side, there are a few more surprises. I don't think many people were expecting. I, I think a lot of people thought Glenn Close was going to win as opposed to Jodie Foster uh, in, in acting. Uh, Andrew Day was a nice surprise, uh, unexpected as well for uh, uh, her Billie Holiday uh, uh, telepic. But other than that, right. not too many surprises. Michael, what did you make of the format? In a way, I kind of liked how the actors were joining virtually. You got a, got a, a window into their homes. You know, Bill Murray with that beautiful sort of L.A. Hollywood Hills backdrop. Uh, the stars still trying, trying to dress up. I mean, in a way, it, it felt a little bit more authentic versus sort of the red carpet uh, and them all all dolled up, you know, and coming to the award show. Do you think that's a format that will work in the future of joining virtually? Well, I, I think it's it's had to work this past year. The Emmys did a really good job with it, but it, it is still tough to pull off. I, I think everyone is exhausted of these Zoom calls. And, and uh, you know, I, I hate to say it, but it, just, it felt a lot like a Zoom meeting throughout most of it. Uh, you know, there were the glitches as a result. Some of the glitches are fine. Uh, you know, the show kicked off with Daniel Kaluuya's voice uh, not being heard because I think he was on mute, uh, which is, you know, it, it, you want those kind of moments uh, at least these unscripted moments on award shows, but there's got to be a better way to do these shows. I don't know what the answer is, but I, I think we're sort of exhausted with these kind of shows. Now. The actors are just like us. They also struggle with the mutant button, the mute button. There you go. Exactly. Uh, Michael, thank you for joining us. Michael Schneider of Vanity Fair. All right, let's get a check on the other stories happening at this hour. NBC's Francis Rivera, Rivera in New York with the latest. Francis. 
Hey, Sima, good morning to you. Yeah, we start with uh, former President Trump, who is breaking his silence, speaking at CPAC last night and strongly hinting he will run again in 2024. Trump continued to push election fraud conspiracies and also attack Republicans who voted to impeach him. The former president also broke precedent going after his successor, President Biden, for rolling back Trump-era policies on climate, Iran, and immigration. According to the CPAC straw poll, 68% of attendees want to see him run again. However, there was near unanimous support for the party to advance Trump's policies. A giant iceberg has broken away from Antarctica's Brunt Ice Shelf. It covers nearly 500 square miles, or about 20 times the size of Manhattan. British researchers say this split was part of a natural process and there is no evidence climate change played a role. Tiger Woods breaking his silence after last week's scary car crash, thanking many players on the PGA Tour who paid tribute to him on Sunday. Woods famously wears red on the final day of tournaments, so golfers like Rory McIlroy, Patrick Reed, and also Jason Day wore the crimson shirts for the last day of the WGC Workers' Championship. Tiger said that he was touched seeing all the red shirts on the course adding that you're truly helping me get through this tough time. So, so many people rooting for Tiger in a very different way that they're used to rooting for him. Seema, those are your headlines. Oh, thank mm-hmm. you so much, Francis. All right, head on this show, the FDA giving Johnson & Johnson the green light to start shipping its single-dose COVID-19 shot. We speak with one doctor who helped orchestrate the company's vaccine trials for one major U.S. hospital. And if you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast. If you missed Worldwide Exchange, check out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. We will be right back. Stocks looking to rebound in the new trading month as interest rates continue to pull back from recent highs. Futures are higher. The political fight over President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus package now moving to the Senate after clearing the House. Elon Moy lays out the hurdles still facing that plan. And the CDC officially approving Johnson & Johnson's vaccine. As the federal government prepares to get the treatment to millions of Americans, it is Monday, March 1st, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. I'm Seema Modi in for Brian Sullivan at this hour. It is the first day of March, and here is how stock futures look as we are halfway through the 5 a.m. hour. The Dow poising, poised for a strong open here, up 340 points in pre-market trade. The Nasdaq is up by 210 points, but keep in mind the Nasdaq still off by 7% uh, off its record high. It was a bruising month for the Nasdaq. This after the 10-year yield hit a one-year high. The bond market, though, reversing course this morning. We're seeing yields coming off the highs of the session. The yield on the 10-year right now, 1.4%. Despite the steep selling uh, that we saw at the close of February, worth noting that the major indices did still close the month with gains. The Dow finishing up more than 3%, the S&P 500 higher by 2.5%. And while technology, the sector ended lower for February, we did see the broader Nasdaq close out the month with a gain of nearly 1%. The big gainers on the Dow for the month, check this out, the industrial giant Caterpillar. Goldman Sachs and Chevron seeing double-digit gains in the month of February. On the S&P 500, it was Marathon Oil as we see this big clawback in energy. Twitter 
and Royal Caribbean, the cruise line, seen gains of 43% in February. The Nasdaq's biggest losers, uh, biggest winners, excuse me, MarriottTrip.com and Applied Materials, seen gains of 20% or more. But again, the month was all about the rotation out of big tech and into value. Check out the action in the Russell Growth ETF, the IWF, flat to down for the month with the Russell Value ETF, the IWD, ending the month up 6%. Now to your morning's top stories. Robinhood reportedly plans to confidentially file for an IPO as soon as this month, according to Bloomberg. The trading platform has held talks with its underwriters in the past week about moving forward with the offering within weeks. The report adds no final decision has been made and the timing could change. President Biden is offering his support for Amazon workers pushing to unionize in Alabama. Without calling out Amazon specifically, Biden yesterday tweeted out a video calling the vote, quote, vitally important. Amazon workers at a warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, began voting by mail early last month on whether to join the retail, wholesale and department store union, the first major unionization effort with the company since 2014. And Britain's finance minister is proposing a new idea to help the country's economy rebound from the pandemic. Speaking on TV yesterday, Rishi Sunak suggested giving people vaccine passports or certificates to allow them to enter venues or events to help the entertainment and hospitality sectors rebound. Prime Minister Boris Johnson said last week that the government would review potentially using that idea. And to Capitol Hill we go as President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus package moves to the Senate after clearing the House over the weekend, teeing up what to expect in the days ahead and what type of deal-making may be happening on the sidelines is Elon Moy joining us with the latest. Elon, good morning. Good morning, Seema. Well, Democrats are determined to pass this COVID relief package within the next two weeks, so they're abandoning their push to raise the minimum wage as part of this bill. The latest version of that proposal would have created a tax penalty for companies that don't pay their workers at least $15 an hour. But two sources tell me that it won't be part of the final package. The measure is controversial and Finalizing that language could have delayed the bill, possibly beyond the deadline the Democrats have set of March 14th when key jobless benefits expire. Still, that didn't stop Senator Bernie Sanders from taking to Twitter to take corporate America to task. Just Walmart, you got McDonald's, you got Burger King, you got Dollar General, you got Dollar Tree, you got all of these companies out there that are often very, very profitable. They pay their CEOs very big bucks, millions of dollars a year, and yet somehow they can't pay their workers a living wage. Now, the White House said that it is still looking for ways to increase the minimum wage, but over the weekend, President Biden urged the Senate to take quick action on COVID relief. We have no time to waste. If we act now decisively, quickly and boldly, we can finally get ahead of this virus. We can finally get our economy moving again. The process in the Senate is a little trickier than in the House because of the special rules they're using to pass this without Republican support. But Seema, it is possible that Democrats could bring this package to the floor as soon as Wednesday. Back to you. The likelihood of that passing before the March 14th deadline? 
It seems pretty high right now, Seema. The fact that they're dropping this provision, which is something that did not have the support of every Senate Democrat. The reason why the minimum wage was so controversial is because there were some senators like Joe Manchin who didn't think that it should go above $11 an hour. Democrats were fighting for $15 an hour. And so the recognition that this was going to be a high hurdle for them to clear, that they they got rid of that, that means it seems like they have the votes they need in order to pass this quickly. The process is still going to take a while. They have to let this go through an amendment process that could take several days still. Um, But it does look like they would be able to meet that March 14th deadline, which is one of the reasons they got rid of the minimum wage to begin with. Got it. Got to wonder where that leaves the progressives, where we know minimum wage has been such a uh, signature issue for them. But, Alon, thank you for your reporting. Alon Moy with the latest in Washington. Now to Johnson & Johnson vaccine set to begin shipping out as soon as today after the FDA and CDC officially signed off on the treatment over the weekend. The J&J vaccine is more flexible given that it is delivered in one shot and doesn't require special storage. For more on their approval and the broader vaccine rollout, I am joined by Dr. Aditya Gore, Director of Clinical Research for Infectious Diseases at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. He also is a co-lead investigator on that hospital's J&J vaccine trials. Uh, Dr. Gore, good morning to you. Good morning, Seema. So what should people know about this J&J vaccine? How is it different from the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that are already on the market? So I think you hit on two of the main points, which is this is the first and only single-dose vaccine. And second, it comes with uh, no freezer but refrigeration requirements. And both of those things are very important. To be able to give one dose and get protection is logistically a big difference compared to what we currently have, which is two very effective vaccines, but they both require two shots. Yeah, third milestone, third vaccine on the market. It's, it's a huge milestone. But doctor, what do you say to those who say, you know, that's great to see a third vaccine on the market, but this J&J vaccine does have a lower efficacy rate than Pfizer and Moderna? And that's a good point, Seema, and it cannot be enough emphasized. So these different trials have been done over the course of the past six, eight months. And as you've seen, there has been an evolving picture of the variants which have mutations which compromise some of the vaccine efficacy. So really, when you look at these numbers, it's not a apples-to-apples comparison when you look at the three vaccines. Certainly, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine with a September to February timeframe has seen much more of the effect of the variants, especially in countries like South Africa. And that's what one should caution. I remind myself and others that what's important is look at protection against the severe and critical illness. And that's where there is a commonality for all of the vaccines. They're all very effective in preventing the severe spectrum of the disease. That's good to know. That's, uh, that's definitely encouraging. How does the distribution of this J&J vaccine, uh, a doctor, speed up the timetable as to when the U.S. could be fully vaccinated? So I think just looking at what uh, Johnson & Johnson has announced in terms of vaccine rollout, they're expecting 4 million doses to go out this week and up to 20 million by end of this month and close to 100 million by mid this year. So these are large numbers, but yet when you look at the United States and our needs, the needs are far more. So it will take more than one vaccine manufacturer, but I think on the positive side, it's very heartening to know that the vaccine doses start to go out um, uh, this week.
And as you said, I mean, this J&J vaccine doesn't require the ultra cold temperatures that the, some of the other vaccines do. How could that help um, get this vaccine to rural areas that uh, may not have those cold storage facilities? So certainly the more stringent the storage requirement, the, the more the freezer requirement, the harder it becomes for for systems that are not used to that kind of a cold chain handling to set up for, for vaccination. When we look at the rollout in the United States, it's a combination of both needing better supplies, but also better execution of the supplies that are being provided. So I think the simplicity of using a cold chain that this manufacturer is used to and has already set up gives it a big um, leg up in terms of uh, getting to, to areas which would otherwise have been difficult if the requirements were more stringent. And in, and in emerging markets, countries like India and parts of South Asia that don't, have, don't have that cold storage facility available. I mean, is this a vaccine that will likely be used there? Certainly. I think uh, that's, a, that's a big consideration. I'm sure the WHO and other regional agencies will look at this being a much more simpler distribution system compared to the other peers that are very effective and out there. All right, Doctor. Well, we appreciate you joining us today to give us uh, the latest on this vaccine. Again, a huge day as we try to move forward to getting back to uh, some sense of normalcy. Dr. Adithya Gore, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Seema. And coming up at 8 a.m. Eastern, Johnson & Johnson CEO and Chairman Alex Gorski exclusively joined CNBC to discuss the approval of his company's COVID vaccine. Coming up, the Oracle of Omaha laying out his outlook on the investing landscape. Becky Quick lays out the top takeaways from Warren Buffett's landscape in his annual letter to Berkshire holders. But first, as we head to break, some of your other top stories. Elementary school kids will likely be able to get a COVID vaccine early next year. In an interview yesterday, Dr. Anthony Fauci said more data is needed to make sure that vaccines already approved can be safely administered to younger children. Rocket Lab is reportedly in talks to go public with a SPAC vector acquisition. According to the Wall Street Journal, the deal, which could be finalized today, would value the space transportation startup at around $4 billion. Bitcoin remaining under pressure, falling to $43,000 yesterday, but it is higher by 2% right now. The crypto is trying to rebound here. Well off the record high, though, of $58,000 that it hit last month. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Warren Buffett releasing his annual letter to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders over the weekend. The letter, which has been a must read for investors, signaling that more Berkshire stock buybacks are coming this year, while also saying not to count the U.S. out. Becky Quick joins us with more. Becky, what stood out to you? Hey, Seema, it's good to see you. You know, there are so many things that come with this. This is always a pretty anticipated letter. It's not just for what it says about Berkshire's businesses, but also what he says about the markets, the economy, about Wall Street, about corporate America and the practices he sees there. And Buffett delivered on much of what we've come to expect over the years. He did admit some mistakes. He offered up some folksy wisdom and he talked up America. Most people try to forget their mistakes, but Buffett put his front and center this time around. It was right at the top of the letter. Berkshire took on an $11 billion write-down last year. Most of that was for precision cast parts. That's a manufacturer for the aerospace industry that it bought back in 2016 for $32.1 billion. I paid too much for the company, Buffett wrote. PCC is far, is far from my first era of that sort, but it's a big one. 
On the other side of the ledger, what he's done right, that's to invest in Apple. Buffett calls Berkshire's 5.4% ownership of Apple one of the family jewels of the company. That's right alongside Berkshire's property and casualty insurance group. It's BNSF Railroad and Berkshire Hathaway Energy. Berkshire paid $36 billion to buy that Apple stake, which it purchased starting in late 2016 and going through mid-2018. Since then, it's sold a small part of that stake for $11 billion, and it's received more than $2.3 billion in dividends from Apple. But now the stake that it's still holding is worth about $110 billion. And that stake has grown thanks to stock buybacks at Apple. Buffett pointed out that Berkshire shareholders have seen their portion of Apple's profits grow not only because of the buybacks at Apple, but also because of buybacks at Berkshire, which bought back $24.7 billion of its own stock during 2020. And that's a record. Now, for the criticism of corporate America, you always see a few dings that come in here, but Buffett did take conglomerates to task this time around. He explained why most of them stink, of course, present company excluded. The big problem with most conglomerates, he said, is that they only buy other businesses in their entirety. and That limits the pool of available businesses because most great companies don't really want to sell out. That's then exacerbated when conglomerates agree to overpay for those companies that they do buy, often with an inflated stock price of their own. As for the comments on the market, they were actually fairly sparse this time around, but he did say that bonds are not the place to be. And uh, it seems that echoes what we heard from Jamie Dimon back in December when he said he wouldn't touch treasuries with a 10-foot pole. We are going to talk more about his defense of stock buybacks, his faith in the American dream, and his criticism of conglomerates. That's all coming up in just a little bit on Squawk Box. But Seema, really, looking at some of the bonds and what he said, those comments about it, I thought were pretty interesting. Sure, especially given the outsized focus on the bond market, especially in the month of February, likely to continue into the month of March as to where the market goes from here. Uh, but the, even though this, the 90-year-old 90 uh, billionaire covered great ground, Becky, in his shareholder letter, I think there were some who were left wanting more on the topic of leadership and succession. Is that something that we now expect Berkshire Hathaway to address potentially in the, the next meeting coming up in May? I do. I would expect all of those things to come up. There were some people who thought that maybe he'd weigh in more on things that he's seen politically. Um, but the annual letter really isn't a place where he's done that in the past. In the past, it's been the interviews that he's done around the release of the letter. He's usually with us on this Monday morning. In fact, this is the first time in 14 years he's not going to be with us on Squawk Box in the morning. Um, and, and that's just because he's spoken a, le a lot less since we've been in this pandemic, spoken out publicly. I don't know entirely why that is, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if part of the reason is just because he doesn't want to be talking too much publicly when things when there's so much kind of chaos in the market and maybe he's doing some moves. Maybe he doesn't want to talk about them. But we know that we'll be hearing from him in May. That meeting is going to be held in Los Angeles this year, and that's a first. Um, it's not going to be in Omaha. It'll be in Los Angeles because uh, there aren't going to be shareholders that are present. It'll be a virtual meeting. But Charlie Munger will be on stage with Warren Buffett for that meeting, Seema. We'll be looking forward to that as always. Becky? Quick, thank you for joining us with the highlights from that shareholder letter. Becky Quick. Sure. And coming up next on Worldwide Exchange, stocks looking to kick off the next week with solid gains. Gilman Hill's Jenny Harrington lays out where she's finding opportunity amid the market's recent volatility. You can see the Dow currently at 330 points. And if you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. We will be right back.
Welcome back. Time for another look at the stocks to watch in the trading day ahead. We are watching shares of Logitech under pressure on a weaker outlook for fiscal 2022. The company pegging that figure at between $750 and $850 million, down from the $1.1 billion that it expects in fiscal 2022. Shares down about 1% right now. Next up, Twilio. It is in talks to invest up to $750 million in the messaging company, Cineverse Technologies, that's according to the Wall Street Journal. It's currently owned by private equity firm Carlyle Group, and shares are up nearly 2%. And take a look at shares of AstraZeneca selling its stake in Moderna for more than $1 billion, according to the London Times. The paper said the sale occurred after Moderna shares soared following the approval of its COVID-19 vaccine, although the exact timing was unclear. AstraZeneca up about eight-tenths of 1% here in pre-market. To the broader markets we go, futures looking to kick off the march in the green after a disappointing session for stocks last week. The Dow ending uh, on Friday up uh, more than 400 point loss on Friday. Right now we are up 340 points in pre-market. The Nasdaq seeing its second down week in a row, all on the heels of rising Treasury yields. The 10-year yield right now uh, off the highs of the session, just around 1.43%. Perhaps no sector hit harder last week than growth. The kind of stocks held in ARK Invest, Kathy Wood's ETF, ARKK, the ETF losing some 11% last week alone. Some of the top holdings, Tesla, Square, and Roku, all down double digits. But could a rebound be underway? I'm joined by Jenny Harrington, Chief Executive Officer and Portfolio Manager at Gilman Hill Asset Management, also a CNBC contributor. And Jenny, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. A little bit more volatility that we saw last week, but even with the volatility that that we saw, it's important to know the S&P 500 is still just off about 3% from its record high. But if you zoom in a little more, you'll see that there is somewhat of a shift underway. Names like Facebook, Alphabet, Amazon, down 10 to 15% from their recent high. I guess the question is, do you buy the pullback or do you think there's more weakness ahead? Well, I think there's more relative weakness ahead, and it's really important on this rotation to talk about what weakness actually means, and it's relative. Because if you think about it, the technology index is still up a half a percent year to date, but it's up 49% over the last year. The NASDAQ's up 2%-ish year to date, but it's up 54% over the last 52 weeks. So the interesting thing about this rotation is it's unlike any rotation I've seen in the past. Normal rotations are a boom and a bust. This one is a boom and a plateau. So I don't think you need to run away from the big stocks that led us last year, particularly if you have big capital gains in them. Maybe they'll plateau and let their earnings consolidate into those huge prices that they developed last year, which would be really healthy and really exciting for a nice change instead of just having something collapse. So I think money can flow in to what didn't work last year, what's working this year. Money can flow in, but it doesn't need to be at the total expense, at the absolute expense of what worked last year. But is there an argument to be made, uh, Jenny, that if yields continue to rise here, that technology is a sector that, that won't be able to really outperform in this type of environment? I think so. But the key being outperform, right? So let's say we're looking at, and this is where technology gets a little bifurcated too. So let's say we look at FANG, at the big at the big guys, Facebook, Amazon, Apple. A lot of them are trading at kind of reasonable multiples, call it between 30 and 60 times. They can grow into those multiples. But let's say you're an individual investor and you made multiple hundreds of percent last year. 
you may not want to realize those capital gains. You don't have to sell those to do well. Now, the other part of technology, the DocuSigns, Pelotons, um, Zooms, I think there's risk, like real risk in those, DoorDash, Airbnb, because to me, those market capitalizations cannot be justified. And maybe you do want to just suck it up and realize your capital gains in those because there is loss ahead, an actual loss ahead in the, in that part of technology. Yeah, I think there were a lot of, uh, there's a lot of surprise after Airbnb earnings actually mm-hmm. came in higher than expected following that huge, that stellar debut on Wall Street. Uh, but where do you stand on a name like Tesla, Jenny? Uh, one of the big losers on the NASDAQ last week. Do you think that was a stock that just run up too fast? Um, or did it have to yeah. do with the, the big drop in Bitcoin that we saw last week? We know Tesla now has Bitcoin on its balance sheet. What ran Tesla up last year was so, I don't know what to call it, like smoke and mirrors or so <laughs> fictional. Tesla ran up because of because of enthusiasm in an unhealthy way. There's no way to justify that market capitalization. And I don't even want to say valuation because it's just something ephemeral that it's trading at. So Tesla had a big move up in August because the shares split. Like that added zero economic value. Tesla got chased up in no small part last year because of the ESG trade. I think that's a little bit ridiculous. You can make an argument. You can pretend that, oh, Tesla's an energy company now. Come on. You can um, say EVs are the way to go, but there's also huge competition there. And also last year was a big year where people just bought stories because last year what happened was um, the dollars and cents and the numbers that we all rely on as investors to make decisions, those went out the window. They disappeared for a while and they were replaced by stories. What's coming in this year is the numbers are coming back into play. You can rely on revenues expectations. You can rely on earnings expectations. So no, I don't think Tesla's multiple at, I'm sorry, Tesla's valuation at $900 a share, which is where it almost was, or here around 700. I don't think that's sustainable in that case. I think there's a, I think there's reasonable if not significant downside in the Tesla share price. Although Tesla up about 3% here in pre-market, so attempting to, to rebound. Uh, it's the first day of March, Jenny. What's the top trade here? Where do you see opportunity in this month? I think the opportunity continues to be in 2020's have-nots. And so you can look at that as, I don't want to say value, right? But you can look at it as energy, financials, dividend stocks, reopening stocks, the things that didn't work last year and are still trading at huge discounts. So for example, there's a company in our growth portfolio called Fiserv. Fiserv does the techno- a lot of software and technology for big banks, trades at 21 times earnings. Nobody knows the name. It wasn't one of the big story stocks of last year. Meanwhile, earnings growth for this year is going to be 23%. Next year, it should be 18%. There's opportunities in companies like that. And don't forget, like there are you know, about 10 stocks in the S&P 500 with an average multiple of 33 times. There are 490 with an average multiple of about 18 times. There are a lot of companies out there with really cheap valuations that really got ignored last year. And there's still a lot of potential. On the topic of inflation, I mean, is that going to be something that this market Mm -hmm. sort of just continues to fight against in the month of March? Um, I think that's going to be a theme, not just for March, but probably for the rest of the year and maybe going forward. And I think inflation is going to be a real push and pull. So you've got the Fed saying, like, inflation, there's no inflation. We're not even thinking about inflation. 
But the market's telling us differently. You see oil trading at 61. Last year it was at 47. You see copper at a 10-year high. You see housing prices that were up 11% in December. And then there's anecdotal stuff from clients. Like, this is interesting. I have a client who manufactures RVs, and they had to actually increase prices, which was devastating. They didn't want to do this to their salespeople or their clients. But every single supplier of those RVs have, have passed on price increases to the manufacturer. So you see it in the macro data and you see it in the micro data. Um, and so there's definitely inflation out there, but then there's other areas of the economy where there's no inflation. I think it's just going to be a push and a pull, but I don't think it's going to be run away. I think it's going to be real, but not run away off the charts derailing the market inflation. Yeah. And in, in some cases, you could say that that was acknowledged by Fed Chair uh, Jerome Powell in last mm-hmm. week's address as well. Jenny, great discussion, wide ranging. Thank you for joining us this morning. Jenny, Jenny Harrington. And we're going to take a quick look Thanks, at Eva. the Dow winners right now. We are being led by J&J up 4% here on that vaccine news. Boeing, Salesforce, Apple and Chevron, the top five winners on the Dow. That does it for us on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box is next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 